0: Hi and welcome to St Ninian's Church in Stonehouse, I'm Stuart and I get to be the minister here. Last week I introduced you to Maggie and she's found a new home. She's off to live with Claire Gemmel, so thanks to everyone who made a donation and had a guess at her birthday. This week I'm going to ask you to visit the website at st-ninians-stonehouse.org.uk and make a donation and have a chance of winning some great hampers. Just click on the picture of the hampers and you should be taken to a page that lets you choose how many entries you want and then directs you to a card payment. It actually says something like pay with PayPal. You can use PayPal if you have it, but if you click on it, it also lets you pay by card. PayPal is just the company that we use to handle the payments for us. And finally, as we approach the anniversary of the first lockdown, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to remember on the 23rd of March at 7pm. Light for Lives is an opportunity as part of a day of remembrance to light a candle and to take a moment to remember all of those we've lost this year, to stand with those who grieve and to commit ourselves again to caring for them. You can find out more on the Light for Lives Facebook group and on our own website and Facebook page over the coming days. This week in our worship, I'm joined by Mara, who will read for us, and Nathaniel, who will lead us in prayer later.
1: John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to be its judge but to be its saviour. Those who believe in the son are not judged but those who do not believe have already been judged because they have not believed in God's only son. This is how the judgment works. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. All those who do evil things hate the light and will not come to the light because they do not want their evil deeds to be shown up. But those who do what is true come to the light in order that the light may show that what they did was in obedience to God.
0: This isn't working. There, I've said it. I feel better already. I wrote those words for a book called Inside Verdict, which was published 18 years ago. It was in a chapter I titled The Emperor's New Church. I suggested that the church is a bit like the story of the emperor strolling naked down the street. Only a child will name the problem. We know something is wrong. It's not been working for many, many years. And I think we've got past the point where we're scared to say it out loud. But I'm not sure we've moved much beyond that. The problem for the church, I think, is one of identity. We don't know what the church is or what it's for. And until we do, until we recover our identity, we'll be stuck. This passage we read today is part of a conversation and we've just dropped in halfway through. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, one of the leaders who has gone to see Jesus at night to find out more about who he is and what he's talking about. We also need to remember that all of the stuff we talked about last week where Jesus clears out the temple has just happened. This is the aftermath. Nicodemus, despite great personal risk, comes to speak to Jesus, to ask important questions and to grapple with the answers. What Nicodemus gets is another lesson in identity, explaining how the people have forgotten who they are. In verse 10, just before our reading, Jesus says to Nicodemus, And you're a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Jesus is trying to put their story back together for them so the people will remember who they are. It's still Passover. That's the festival where the Jews remember the story of painting lamb's blood around their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over them, leaving them unharmed. So painting the doorpost was a mark of their identity. We heard about how in the wilderness God gave the people a set of commandments that were actually a radical statement about their identity. I am your God. And that means you are my people. That's who you are. You're not slaves anymore. You are God's people. And John in his gospel reminds us of the same thing. His gospel starts with a reminder of the Genesis stories of creation. That God made all things, including us. And it was good. God made humans in his image and breathed life into them. And God walked in the garden with them. It's an amazing picture of how it's all meant to be. A world where people take responsibility for God's creation attend to it and care for it. A world where people don't need for anything because they have enough. A world where God is present and seen and heard. And the thing that breaks is the relationship with God. As Jesus explains who he is to Nicodemus, he talks about a weird story we find in the book of Numbers. It's about Moses making a bronze snake in the wilderness. The people have been travelling around in the wilderness after their escape from Egypt and they had to go around the land of Edom and they were tired and they were hungry and there wasn't very much water and, well, they do what we all do. They complained a lot. Why can't we just go back to Egypt? At least there we had food and water. I mean, it was pretty awful. We were slaves and beaten and sometimes killed and and made to work really hard in the heat of the day. But now we're stuck in the wilderness and there's no end in sight. It can't be worse than this. Ah, the good old days. The imagined past where everything was better. We all do it. I wish things were like they were when I was younger, when children were respectful and politicians were honest and where everyone went to church. Life was hard. Working conditions were poor, wages were low. Kids left school at 14 to go and work in mines and factories. Infant mortality was high. Life expectancy was low. But we all wish at times that we could go back to those days when we imagined things were just a bit more straightforward, more predictable. It's a trick that our memories play. The distance helps. We knock off some of the more difficult parts and we remember the sunny days first. Well, mostly. The problem we have is that change is unsettling. We don't like uncertainty and that's a lesson we've learned over the last year. So we try to recreate the times where we felt in control or at least settled. That's why we go to the same places on holiday. That's why we repeat traditions and cling on to things so hard. We think that we could still be those people that we imagined that we were all those years ago and that things would be just the same. Church is one of those things we cling to, especially when the world around us seems to be changing at a rate that we can't even imagine never mind keep up with. A wee oasis of the past that we can visit once a week. But what does that have to do with a bronze snake held up in the wilderness? God sent poisonous snakes and the people cried out to God to save them. God told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it in a pole and when the people looked at the snake they would be healed. So here's the thing. The word used for snake is seraphim, as in cherubim and seraphim from the Christmas hymns. Now, you're probably thinking that those are chubby wee angels, but cherubim are winged lions and seraphim means fiery snake. That's why we translate it as poisonous or venomous because a snake bite feels like you're in fire. So that makes sense. But seraphim are spiritual creatures like cherubim and angels, So perhaps this whole incident is a spiritual problem. The people have already forgotten their identity as God's people. So God sends some spiritual problems, snake bites if you like, to remind the people who they should rely on. The bronze snake is a physical prompt. Look, God is in charge here. Don't forget. Don't lose faith. Because when you forget who God is, you also forget who you are. But guess what happened? The bronze snake, rather than being a reminder to look to God, becomes a thing that the people worshipped. Eventually, the prophet Hezekiah destroys the snake because it's become so problematic, an idol, distracting the people from worshipping God. I wonder do we do the same with our church buildings, or our pattern of worship, or the words that we use? It's one of the reasons that the reformers built plain, white, unremarkable churches, nothing to distract and nothing of value. But even that austerity can become an idol. Snakes in the Desert is a story about identity, who the people are, who God is, and the problems that happen when the people forget who they are. John describes that same condition as living in darkness. So how do you fix things? How do we turn the lights back on? We can't go back to some rose-tinted past, but we can mend our relationship with God. That's something we can all do. Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus to see what the problem is because until that happens you can't begin to fix it. Nicodemus comes at night in the darkness looking for illumination and he gets it. His life is transformed by that encounter. In the 12 steps model the first step to recovery is being honest about what the problem is and who you are in relation to it. That's why people introduce themselves by naming their problem. Hi I'm Stuart and I'm a whatever. So in our lives, in our communities and in our churches, what are the problems that we need to name? What are the things that have become our substitutes for God, our idols even? The things that distract us or get in the way of a proper relationship with God? I wonder if in our rush to return to whatever normal is, we will miss the chance to have a real think about what works and what hasn't been working for a long, long time. I wonder if we can regain our focus in God, rather than on maintaining an institution. I wonder when the lights will dawn on our darkness, and we will all realize that we are all God's people, and that we're all loved beyond all measure.
1: In every sadness, O God, you are there, holding out comfort. In every darkness, O God, you are there, holding out light. In every fear, O God, you are there, holding out hope. In everything, O God, you are there, holding out love. When we don't know where to go, when we fear what lies ahead, when we long for what we knew, may we see you sometimes ahead of us, leading us, sometimes behind us, nudging us, often beside us, accompanying us through it all. May we rest our weary souls in the balm of your grace and your love until we are renewed to carry on following where you lead in steadfast love.
0: So go in peace, with your eyes and your hearts focused on the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, today, tomorrow, and always.